Hey, I know this week has been kind of an interesting week for a lot of people, especially Friday with just the weather and the disruption that it caused. But uh, um, if, and there's just been a lot of things going on. I know there was the, the women's if conference or gathering happened uh, this weekend at First Christian Anytown. We had a number of women attend that. And all reports were that it was just fantastic and that it was uh, an incredible experience. We had our students out, out at White Mills for uh, the winter retreat. And, and the early report from Bobby was there was a few moments of chaos, but it was, it was good. And I was like, well, that's camp. Uh, so, but they had a great time. And, and there, was, there was a moment Friday uh, morning where it had rained really hard. I guess it's about 11, 11.30 or so. It had rained really hard, and then it just stopped. I mean, it was just a hard downpour, and then a sudden stop, and the sun came out. And I looked out my window, and uh, I just thought, that's probably not a good sign. Like, that means something bad is coming. But it was also just a reminder in that moment that, look, that whatever storms come in life, that either before you, before the storm, the sun is there, and after the storm, the sun is there. And that's how it works in, in God's kingdom, that that Christ is with you in the storms. He's always with us in the storms. He's with us before the storm, and sometimes we don't see his, his presence until after the storm when we see the, the effect of the storm. But he's always there. He's never left. And so Friday was just a, it was a nice reminder, nice maybe not the right word, a good reminder, just that whatever life throws at us, we're, we're okay. Like We've got Jesus. What else do we need? Like, right? That's, that's really all that we need. And that's really what this series has been about, is about being all in with Jesus. Um, the whole reason I wanted to do this series was, was mainly for me, um, because I knew that I needed to step up in my, in, in my walk with Christ, and i got to be all in. And, and as I was just reading stuff and, and, and praying and trying to get my mind right with Christ and my life right with Christ, I said, this is stuff I think our people need to hear. And so we're, we're winding down our series. Uh, we've been in this series for six weeks, maybe, I think. We're going to do this week, and then next week we're going we're gonna to wrap up our series all in, and then we'll start something else. But I hope this series, as you look back on it, I hope there's been some powerful moments for you. I hope there's been some moments where you think, you know what? I want to be all in. And, and people talk about what's going on, what happened at Asbury, and, and there's still some remnants of that. And that's all great. But let me just be real clear about this. What happened at Asbury was remarkable. But not because of where it was at. It didn't have to happen at Asbury. Asbury just happened to be the place where people were willing and receptive to the Holy Spirit to let that happen. It's all about the people, not the place. And so we want to see those kind of revivals, those kind of outbreaks take place in our community. Guess what? It can. But it won't happen without you. you got to be all in. And if we're going to be all in, then I think we'll start to see that stuff. And so today we're going we're gonna to talk about one more person in the Old Testament who was all in. And we're going to talk about his, his all in moment. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story. About 100 years ago, there was the, the Philadelphia Church in Stockholm, Sweden. And they sent two missionary couples to the Congo in Africa, David and Svea Flood, along with Joel and Bertha Erickson. And they, they took their machetes and they macheted their way through the jungle of Africa and wanted to make a, a mission, establish a mission nation. During that first year that they were there, they didn't see a single convert. 
The village was resistant to the gospel because they were afraid of offending their tribal gods. But that didn't keep Spia Flood from sharing the love of Jesus with a five-year-old boy who brought, brought fresh eggs to her back door every day. Spia became pregnant not long after they got there, and she was bedridden during much of the pregnancy as she was battling malaria. So she gave birth to a baby girl named Diana on April the 13th, 1923. But Spia died 17 days later. David made a casket for his 27-year-old wife and buried her on the mountainside overlooking this village. Grief set in, and then after grief came bitterness. And, and after bitterness, he just, he, he, he just didn't know what to do. And so he gave his daughter Aina to the Ericsons, and he returned home to Sweden. He left, he left that village in Africa without a wife, with dashed dreams, a broken heart, and he left his daughter there with the other missionary couple. He would spend the next five decades of his life trying to, to drown his sorrows with alcohol. He warned those that he knew, his friends, the very few that he had, to never mention God's name in his presence because he just couldn't understand how God could do something like this to him. The Ericsons, they raised Diana until she was a toddler, but both of them died within three days of each other when the villagers poisoned them. So Aina was given to an American missionary couple, Arthur and Anna Berg. The Bergs renamed their, their newly adopted daughter Agnes, and they called her Aggie. And they eventually returned back to America to, to pastor a church in South Dakota. This was around high school years, and so after high school, Aggie enrolled in North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that's where she would meet the love of her life. She met a fellow student named Dewey Hurst. And they started a family of their own, and they served a number of different churches as, as the minister and the minister's wife. And, and then Dr. Hurst became the president of Northwest Bible College. On the 25th uh, anniversary of their wedding, the college gave Dewey and Aggie a special gift, a trip to Sweden. Aggie's sole purpose in this trip was to go find her biological father, who had abandoned her 50 years before. And so they searched for, for days, for five days, without a trace of of her father nobody seemed to know him and then on the last day of their trip they got they got a tip that would lead them to this ramshackled apartment where her father was found bedridden dying of a of liver disease the last words david flood ever expected to hear were papa it's aina and the first words out of his mouth were words that were filled with remorse he said i never meant to give you away they embraced and in that embrace, a 50-year curse of bitterness was broken. A, a daughter was reconciled with her father on that day. And a father was reconciled with his heavenly father for all of eternity. Aggie and, and Dewey visited with, with David Flood, and then they left. And they left Sweden to go back home. And when Aggie landed in Seattle the next day, she received news that her dad had died while they were in flight. Now you think, I mean, that's, that's a, a, a great compassionate story that they were able to reconcile, but man, how tragic that story is that, that he, you know, they had that one moment and then he died. But here's the rest of the story. Five years later, Dewey and Aggie Hurst would attend the World Pentecostal Conference in London, England. There would be over, over 10,000 delegates from around the world gathered at Royal Prince Albert Hall for this conference. And one of the speakers on opening night, and I'm going to butcher this name, and I'll probably say it four or five different ways throughout this, was Ruhita Nagadora. 
the superintendent of the Pentecostal church in Zaire. What caught Aggie's attention and drew her to him was the fact that Rohigada was from the region where her parents had been missionaries a half century before. After the message, Aggie uh, went up to him and began to speak to him through an interpreter. And she asked him if, if he knew of the village where, where she was born. And, and Rohigada told her, he said, that's the village I grew up in. So then she asked, well, did you know of any missionaries by the name of Flood? And he said, every day I would go to Thea Flood's back door with a basket of eggs. She would tell me about Jesus. And he said, I don't know if she had a single convert in all of Africa besides me. He said, shortly after I accepted Christ, Sophia died and her husband left and they had a baby girl named Diana. And I've always wondered what happened to Aina. Aggie then revealed that she was Aina. And Rohigata, he just started to sob. They, they embraced like siblings that had been separated at birth. And it was just a great moment. And then he said this. He said, just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's grave. On behalf of the hundreds of churches and hundreds of thousands of believers. Think about that. Hundreds of churches, hundreds of thousands of believers in Zaire. Thank you for letting your mother die so that so many of us could live. Man, that's powerful. But sometimes, going all in feels like it's all for nothing, doesn't it? David Flood, when he went back to Sweden, he thought, I was all in and I lost everything. It was all for nothing. That's how I'm sure the believers felt on Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It, it was we, we gave everything up for this, but Jesus is dead. He's in a tomb. He's not coming back. But on, on Resurrection Sunday, he proved that wrong, right? It's never over until God says it's over. The greatest spiritual victory was, was won on the hills of seemingly the greatest defeat. All was lost, but not for long. Three days after the crucifixion, Jesus walked out of that tomb under his own power. And if that's not something worth celebrating, then I don't know what is. Look, in God's kingdom, failure is never final. Not if you believe in the resurrection. That's, that's the great power of the resurrection, is that failure is never final. You won't win every spiritual battle. You just won't. But the war has already been decisively won. The victory was sealed 2,000 years ago when Jesus broke the seal of his tomb. It was the death blow to death itself. Think about that. Jesus' resurrection was the death blow to death. And we are more than conquerors now because of what Christ accomplished. Look, if you go all in, and I hope that you do, know this, there will be setbacks along the way. But remember this, without a crucifixion, there can be no resurrection. You can't have a resurrection if there's never a crucifixion. You, you, you are going to have a setback. But when you have a setback, don't take a step back because God is already preparing for your comeback. Look, David and Sphia Flood, they didn't have a single convert that they knew of. They thought it was all for nothing. But one seed took root. One seed took root and it bore fruit beyond belief. And you never know which seed that's going to be. But if you plant, if you plant the seed and you water the seed, Scripture guarantees that God himself will give the increase. Never underestimate, and, and hear this, never underestimate the ripple effect of one act of obedience. Because it will never be all for nothing. You may not see the, 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 the immediate result of it. 
But never underestimate just the ripple effect of one act of obedience. You ever take a rock when you were a kid and just, and just throw it into the pond? You do that? I grew up on a farm, and we had, we had a pond right below our house, and one of my favorite boredom activities to do was just to go down to, to the pond and throw rocks in it and just watch the ripples. And you could throw a rock, you could drop a rock right on one end of the bank, and the ripple you could see go all the way across the pond. That's what our obedience to Christ is like. Our obedience has a ripple effect on our community, on our church, on, on, on everybody that we come into contact with. It will never be all for nothing, even if you can't immediately see the results. I think that's probably what Moses felt like at some point in his life. I think Moses, he, he's the guy we're going to talk about this, this morning. For 40 years, Moses felt like he had failed to accomplish his God-ordained dream of delivering the Israelites out of slavery. The, the prince of Egypt, that's what he was. He had all of, the all of the potential in the world at age 40, but by age 80, he felt like a lost cause. He'd lost everything when he lost his temper. And, and you remember the story that he's, he's there working, and, and the Egyptian taskmaster is just is, is working the, the Israelite slaves to death. And Moses gets fed up, and so he kills the Egyptian taskmaster. And so now he's a felon and a fugitive. He runs to, to the desert. Instead of doing God's will, God's way, he took matters into his own hands. He killed this taskmaster, and in trying to expedite, expedite God's will, he delayed God's will for four decades. Probably thought, man, all of this was for nothing. All of it. I think at some point in our lives, we probably feel like life has passed us by. That our dreams seem like a lost cause, and, and our reality doesn't match up with our ideal, idyllic, ideal. I can't say that word. Our ideal, yeah, that word. What you're, what you're thinking. But that crisis, that there's, a, there's a crisis in our mind when that happens that presents us with, with, with a choice. We're going to throw in the towel and give up and say it was all for nothing, or, or we're going to throw our hat in the ring, back in the ring, and we're going to give it another go, and, and we're going we're gonna to not give up. I think... I think too many people give up on their dreams because they feel like, like it's just too late. They, they, they just feel like maybe God's given up on me and so everything's just too late. They, they call it quits. But the ageless wonder serves as a timeless reminder that it's never too late to be who you thought you might have been. Hear that. It's never too late to be who you thought you might have been. Look, I know, I know life takes us in all kinds of crazy directions and sometimes we think... Um, we think life is going to go this way for us, and life ends up going this way for us. And, and nothing looks like how we thought our life would be planned out. And, and maybe it's like what Tim was talking about, that, that sometimes maybe it, it's because of your own choices. And sometimes it's because of the choices that other people make, sometimes for you, and sometimes just the consequences of their choices. And, and so life just doesn't pan out the way that we thought it was going to be. And you're not who you want to be and who you thought you would be. But know this, it's never too late if we believe in the, in the resurrection of Jesus, it's never too late to be who you thought you might have been. Moses is the perfect example of this. He's the perfect example of, of second and third and fourth and fifth and hundredth of, of chances. No matter how many wrong turns we, we take, no matter how many detours we, we've been down, it's God's grace that always gets us back on the parade route. That was the same was true for Moses. Moses' life didn't pan out anything like he thought it was going to. At least I don't think it did. And yet it was God's grace that brought Moses back. Think about this. Moses was literally put out to pasture. 
for 40 years. And then after, uh, he, he kills the Egyptian taskmaster and he flees. And so he, he, he becomes the shepherd. He's put out to pasture. And that probably seemed like a life sentence to Moses. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I can't ever go back there. Everybody knows me back there. If I go back there, they'll kill me. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It was a life sentence. But, but for Moses, it was really parole with a purpose. God had already put Moses through 40 years of Palace 101. Now he needed Moses to take Wilderness 101. The irony of, of the story of Exodus is, is this, is that Moses thought he was unequivocally unqualified to, to do what God was asking him to do. You remember, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but you remember when God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Moses, I can't do that. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. I got a stuttering problem. I, can, I, can, I can't even talk right, 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 right. right. See, I, I have that problem sometimes too. I can't even talk right. Moses said, I can't do that. It's not me. You got the wrong guy. But Moses was, was so qualified. God was leveraging every past experience to providentially prepare him for his date with destiny. No one knew the protocol of the palace like Moses did. I mean, he had grown up in it. He was the prince of Egypt. He had lived that for 40 years. He knew the, he, he knew the ways of the palace. And after tending sheep for 40 years, he knew the ways of the wilderness. He knew the ways of the wildlife, the watering holes, the weather patterns. Can you think of a better way to prepare Moses to lead the sheep of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years than by tending sheep for his father-in-law on the backside of that same desert for 40 years? God was, God was preparing Moses for this great, great triumphal procession. And look, going all in isn't something, going all in for God isn't something that you're going to do just once. In fact, you'll probably do it several times and you'll have to do it several times because you'll have failures along the way you'll probably have several failures before you get it right but i think there, there comes a point in our lives where someday we we celebrate the failure as much as we celebrate the success because failure is the fertilizer that grows character moses had plenty of failures in his life i mean you, you read through the, the those first couple of chapters of exodus and you think this is the guy god picked like this, really, God, you couldn't do any better than this. This is the guy you're picking. He, he can't get anything right. But failure is the fertilizer that grows character. And character, character sustains success so that, uh, so that it doesn't backfire. Success without any failure is like a, like a plant without any roots or a building without a, uh, without a foundation. Failure is the substructure that supports the superstructure of success. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in his letter to the church in, in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That, that promise in 2 Corinthians 2 is, is an uh, allusion to a Roman tradition. After winning a great victory, the Roman army would march through, through the streets of Rome with, with their captives in their train. It was their triumphal procession. And this triumphal procession, it would start at the Campus Meredith, and it would lead to the Circus Maximus and around Palatine Hill, and immediately they would march under the Arch of Constantine, and, and that pr procession would go along the Via Sacra to the, Via, to the Forum Romanum and onto uh, the Capitoline Hill. The Arch of Constantine was, was erected by the Roman Senate to commemorate Constantine's victory at the Battle of Milvian. And any time there was a conquest... That was the parade route for the military. 
Anytime the Roman Empire went and, and had, a, had a victory, this is what they would do. Over 500 triumphal processions passed under the Arch of Constantine during the reign of, that, of, of the Roman Empire. Think about that, 500. Our triumphal procession begins at the foot of the cross. Christ is the conquering king, and we are the captives in his train, set free from sin and set free from death. But, but that's really, it's just the very first step of faith. Going all in is, is following the footsteps of Jesus wherever he might lead us, wherever that procession will take us to. That's what going all in is all about. It's about being, Jesus, I am yours to use. So lead me, take me wherever you go, and I will follow you. That was what the Israelites were, were going to do. They were going to follow God out of, out of the land of Egypt. For four centuries, the Israelites served, suffered as slaves in the land of Egypt. For four centuries. Then God raised up a deliverer named Moses, and with ten miraculous signs, the triumphal procession out of Egypt began. But by the time the Israelites reached the Red Sea, it seemed more like a death march, didn't it? And, and the Red Sea was literally a, a dead end. But God does what God, do, God did what God does best. He, he made a way where there was no way, and so he parted the waters of the Red Sea, and he allowed the Israelites to, to march through the, through the Red Sea on dry ground. And what seemed like certain defeat turned into their most notable victory. If you look in the back of your Bible, most of our Bibles have maps in them. And you can plot the, the route that the Israelites traveled. And you can see for where they were going to where they, where they were going to go. And if you, if you just look at their route, it really just kind of looks like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> what should have taken 11 days took the Israelites 40 years. Think about that. 11 days, it's an 11-day walk. It took them 40 years. And I'm sure every wife in, in that caravan said, why don't you stop and ask for directions? Just stop and ask for directions. And every man said, we still got camels, so we're not lost, right? But despite all of those delays, it was still a triumphal procession. It, it, their triumphal procession was the path through the Jordan River, and it literally led them to the promised land. Every triumphal procession has a, has a point of origin. And that certainly includes Israel's exodus out of Egypt. If, if you backtrack all the way to the beginning the, the, the journey to the promised land starts where? In a desert, on a farm where Moses was tending sheep with a burning bush. Moses lived on the backside of, of the desert staring at the backside of sheep for four decades. And in case you care, that's over 21 million minutes of his life. His life was defined by monotony until he had this epiphany. On a day that started out like the other 14,600 days before, Moses spots a burning bush out of the corner of his eye. And then he, he walks over to investigate that burning bush, and he hears a voice call out his name. And then God begins to reveal his plan to Moses. And remember, we talked about this just a moment ago. Moses objected to the Almighty. He said, I can't do this, God. It's too big for me, right? He gave a litany of excuses ranging from his lack of credentials to, to a stuttering problem. Moses summarized his insecurities by simply saying, who am I? Who am I that I might do this? But I want you to know that's the wrong question. Who am I is the wrong question because it's not about who you are or who I am. It's about whose you are. And I love what God says to him. God says, I am who I am. 
God answers his question by revealing, by revealing his name. And then he offers this reassurance to him that, that I'm going to be with you. And really, he offers that same reassurance to us when we say, God, who am I that I might do this? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are. You're mine. That's who you are. And I am with you. And that ought to be enough, right? That ought to be all we need to know. If God is for us, then who can be against us? God plus one equals a supermajority, right? His name is the solution to every problem. His name is the answer to every question. His name calms every fear. It stills every prayer. It wins every battle. At His name, angels, angels bow down and demons quake. At His name, our sin is vindicated and our authority is validated. At His name, all people will bow and declare that there is only one God. It's not about who you are. Who you are is absolutely irrelevant. It's about whose you are. Look, God doesn't use us because of us. He uses us in spite of us. It's not like heaven is going to go bankrupt if you stop tithing. All right? Now, don't get me wrong. The church might, but, 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 but heaven won't. The creator doesn't need your network. It doesn't need you to go network for him. And, and even if you decide to take your talents elsewhere, it's not like the kingdom of God is going under anytime soon. But for reasons that will only be revealed on the far side of heaven, God has chosen to accomplish his purpose through ordinary people, through me and through you. He loves being on mission with his children, and so he invites us in, into to his plans and his purposes. But if we're going to be a part of that, if we're going to get in the game, then we've got to do like Moses did, we've got to throw down our staff. Here's what I mean by that. There's, if you go back to, to that story of the burning bush and you read a little bit further, really to the end of the chapter and the start of the next chapter, there's a conversation that takes place between God and Moses. Here's what happens. It says, the Lord asked him, what is in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord said to him. And so Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. Now, I don't know what Moses thought was going to happen when, when he threw down his staff. But I think it turning into a snake was probably not high on the priority list. Like, nobody really saw that coming. And I think that's part of God's playful nature. I think this, this was a, an attempt by God, a, a, a design by God, to, to I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to use a little shock factor. I'm going to surprise you to get your attention because what I'm about to tell you is super important. And so I want you to be paying real close attention. And so, Moses, throw down your staff. And it, throw, and it turns into a snake. See, throwing down our staff is letting go, and it's letting God. It's giving up control, and that's counterintuitive for those of us who like to be in control. Craig Groeschel, minister, said it this way. He said, you can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have them both. If you want God to do something off the chart, then you've got to take your hands off the controls. I, I've told you before, and I, I'm not a real good golfer, and so I shouldn't use golf analogies, but I'm going to anyway. And when, I, when I'm playing golf and I think I need to hit the ball just a little bit further, my tendency is to grip the club just a little bit tighter. You know, we're playing on, on 18th and Jerry's up one stroke on me, and I, I know I'm going to get him on this hole, but I got to outdrive him. And so I grip that club a little tighter and I take my swing, and it always has the opposite effect. The key to a long drive is, is loosening your grip. And it's the same with, it's the same with God. See, that staff... The, the significance of that staff is that it represented Moses' identity and his security as a shepherd. It was the way Moses made a living. It was the way that he protected himself and he protected his flock. And so when God told him to throw it down, 
God was asking Moses to let go of who he was and what he had. So all the things that you've worked for and, and, and built over the last 40 years, I'm asking you to put those aside. I'm asking you to throw them down and let me be in control. It was Moses' all-in moment. Now let me just ask you as we, as we close our time this morning, what are you holding on to? Or maybe I should ask it this way. What are you not willing to let go of? Because if you're not willing to let go of it, then you don't control whatever it is that you're holding on to. It controls you. And if you don't throw it down, then your staff will forever remain just a staff. It will always be as it currently is. But, but, if you have the courage to throw down your staff, it will become the lightning rod of God's miraculous power. Not because you threw it down. No, no, not, not because you threw it down. But because of the one who has the power to change it. So again, let me ask a question. What's in your hand? It's the same question that the Lord asked Moses, but it's also the same question that he asked us. And we might be tempted to just say, well, you know, hey, it's just a, it's just a stick. It's just a staff. You might be tempted to think, well, what difference does it matter? I'm one person. I can't make much of a difference anyway. But, you know, that Asbury Revival, it started with like three kids that just said, hey, you know, we're going to stay and pray for a little while. And then people drove 17 hours. That's incredible. Three kids, three college kids said, what difference can I make? And then because of their, their act of obedience, the ripple effect was that people drove from as far as 17 hours away to be a part of that. If you think you can't make much of a difference, let me tell you, you're probably right. You can't as long as you hang on to what you have. But things operate differently in the kingdom of God. They, math is not the same in the economy of God. Let me tell you another little quick story about about a person who has something in his hand and, and God's math it didn't add up because in, in, in God's math, 5 plus 2 doesn't equal 7. It equals 5,000 with a remainder of 12. You remember the little boy that, that had five pieces of bread and two, uh, and two fish and, and there, there's all these people and they're hungry. And the disciples said, well, that won't make much of a difference. But the little boy brought them and he put them in the hands of Jesus. And when he put them in the hands of Jesus, there was enough to feed 5,000 people and there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. They had more when they were finished than they had when they started. If that little boy had brought those two fish and five pieces of bread and he had held on to them, they would have remained just as they were. Five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish. But by putting them into the hands of Jesus, those two fish and those five pieces of bread turned into a miracle. So again, what are you holding on to? What's in your hands that God can do something with if you're just willing to let go of it, if you're just willing to throw it down and say, God, I'm all in. Do with me as you may. Are you willing to throw down your staff? Let me pray for us.